Good morning. Hello. How are you? All right. Let's try this again. Good morning. How are you? Ah, much better, much better. Hi, my name is Dario Rivera. I'm a solutions architect here with AWS. I've been with AWS for about uh, close to five years now. Had a lot of fun all five of those years, and I'm really excited uh, to bring to you today some of the most uh, innovative thinking I've seen in quite a while around uh, healthcare and life sciences. So what we're going to be doing today is talking a little bit about uh, something of an experience that I had. I was invited to Indiana, uh, go to the uh, Eli Lilly headquarters, uh, sort of kind of in shade. Um, they didn't tell me much about what I was going to be talking about with them. I was, uh, they, they didn't even take me to the headquarters. They took me to some like satellite office that was very nondescript. I didn't understand what was going on. Uh, but yet what I saw was uh, pretty remarkable, uh, not just in terms of um, their thinking and the methodology associated to how innovation was done, but also the ability uh, to be able to execute on those ideas. And so what we're going to be talking about now, first we'll have uh, Barry Chris come up, and he's going to be the, he's the director of the uh, Clinical Innovation Lab, and he'll be talking a bit about uh, the process and the methodology and the thinking of how Eli Lilly does innovation. And then afterward we'll have uh, David Krumbacher up, kind of talk to you a little bit about how that was actually executed upon. So take it away, Barry. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here with us. Our founder, more than 100 years ago, Colonel Eli Lilly, said, take what you find here and make it better and better. And so my long friend and colleague, Dave, and I have been following in that tradition, innovating together. And today we want to share with you some of the things that we've learned on what it takes to be successful in a large, conservative, bureaucratic pharmaceutical company. How can you successfully innovate? Because innovation is hard in that kind of environment. And so we've learned over the years that there's a lot of ingredients that need to come together to be successful. And so I'm going to talk about our lab and the non-technical ingredients and cover that very briefly. And then Dave's going to come up and talk to you about the meat of this thing, the thing that you want to hear about, which is how we use Amazon's web services and the technical platform to be able to successfully innovate. So the first ingredient to, integrate, or to innovating in a, in a large corporation is to bootstrap correctly. That's often the hardest part. How do you get started? And so for us, bootstrapping means that we have to have a goal. And it needs to be a goal of a certain type. It has to have three characteristics. It needs to be a think big goal, that moonshot type thing, where you're really swinging for the fences. It also needs to be hard. It's a hairy problem. Something that people are going to tell you, you can't do that. You're crazy. And it needs to be audacious. It needs to have a big risk return proposition associated with that. So we always do our work first by defining and being explicit about what our big, hairy, audacious goal is, and then getting buy-in from management that that's the thing that we're going after. So that sets it up. And from there, you need to innovate in a context. 
So bootstrapping has to fit into a broader innovation model. And for us, that's the innovation model that comes from the Product Development Management Association, PDMA. And they have a 3D model. We won't go into the details of that. You can go online and look this up. We're in the discover part of that, the first part that does the research and gets things going. And we follow three different kinds of um, techniques in this discovery phase of our innovation model. The first is design thinking, which you've probably heard of. It's a big buzzword these days, but we've been doing it for a long time and found it to be a very successful um, technique for doing um, user-centered research and bootstrapping properly. And then to do that in a co-creation method, to don't do it in a skunk works, but to involve people in the process and be agile while you're doing that. Another important ingredient is to get your team right. So we really believe in this two pizza team, although I think my team can eat 10 if they, <laughs> they set their minds to it. Um, so the goal isn't to fill up a parking lot with the team. Instead, it's to get the right mix of people together in the team, a small team. And that means having people who can do right brain stuff and left brain stuff. So to that end, we have creatives on our team. We actually have someone who has a degree in art. We have a cinematographer on our team. Um, we also balance that with folks that can do the engineering thing. So it's like Imagineering, that Disney thing where you try and combine those two things. And so to form a successful team, it's not just about having a technical team that can take requirements and implement them. Instead, it's about people that can actually think about and envision what the future would be and then act on that and build prototypes and do that design thinking um, model. We organize our work into three different buckets in support of the design thinking and co-creation methods. The first one is what we call the kitchen table. And this is really important to bootstrapping. It's about understanding who you're serving and grokking that really getting inside of it and getting under the covers of it. So user research isn't just interviewing people and defining requirements. Instead, it's actually engaging. And Dave's going to talk a little bit about, give some examples of how we do that. And we call that the kitchen table because it's like when you're at Thanksgiving and you're sitting around the kitchen table and you're really getting, you know, a deep conversation, really starting to understand each other. From there, the things um, that come out of the kitchen table lead to um, workbench work. This is making stuff. This is doing it. This is brainstorming and trying it. And then taking that and putting it into what we call the proving ground. Show it to people. We make exhibits. We, we put on what we call bling days. Come over here and take pot shots at this thing. Right? And that'll put you into that really productive upward spiral that lets you iterate rapidly and take ideas and kill the ones that are terrible and build on the ones that are good. It's also important to have the right place. If you're embedded in the belly of the beast, innovation becomes impossible because the day-to-day -day concerns of the organization gobble up all your free time. You can't innovate that way. So we're off-site. We're at a facility called the Union, um, which is a tech-oriented startups, that sort of thing. Um, we have the second floor of this. And 
This lets us have space dedicated to doing innovation work. We have a maker studio, so we have 3D printers, we have soldering station and electronics, because we've got a couple electrical engineers, so we can do hardware work as, as well as software-based stuff. Um, and this lets us set up um, stories, if you will. This lets us make the props that become part of your vision of the way the future could work, and Dave's gonna show off some of that, too. We also are very media-oriented because it is about storytelling. The currency of innovation is stories. And so we have a recording studio. This lets us make prototypes of how the future could work and turn those into videos or interactive media on a website. And finally, we have an exhibit hall slash theater, if you will. And we can configure this. You see there's a pipe grid above, so we can put electricity and network anywhere we want in the facility and arrange it. In this particular um, slide, you see we're actually running a co-innovation workshop in here. Um, we can set up exhibits and allow people in the proving ground to come in and try things and give us feedback so that we can improve. And we embed ourselves in here so our offices aren't separated from this. We work in this environment right here. So this then results in an ability to output things. And the output of our innovation lab work, our discovery in that 3D model is really three basic things. One, we make these prototypes that show how the future could work. We turn those into exhibits that people can experience. It becomes demonstrable, not just a white paper or something that you're spouting off as a good idea. And it allows you to involve people. The output is relationship and interaction, and that comes through workshops or show and tell sessions that allow people to see you know, and to understand what we're talking about. So those are the basic ingredients, the non-technical ingredients. Now Dave's gonna to talk to us about what we call our innovators platform. And this is based largely on Amazon Web Services and allows us to do these things that I was talking about. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Okay, great, thank you. So in order to build out these uh, ideas and make them demonstrable, we needed to go beyond uh, slideware or uh, just simple presentation. We felt that it was necessary to actually build out these capabilities and prove what's possible. So we needed a platform to do that. And we've been building on this platform for some time, and I want to talk with you about that and how Amazon Web Services plays a role in that. So I'm going to share with you a few examples of how we have, uh, have done this. So if you remember Barry's... Uh, slide where he talked about our big, hairy, audacious goal. And one of the goals that we've been spending time on recently is this one, to make clinical trials an option for all. If you think about that, that's a pretty big goal. It's uh, something that is difficult for uh, sponsors to get um, patients to enroll in studies, and it's burdensome for people to consider enrolling in clinical trials. So we wanted to take this as an option for us to consider as our long-term goal. But in order to uh, really take a piece of that and really work at it and see if we can prove out how we can improve on that, we wanted to take a particular focus. And in this area of focus that we've been spending time on is on alleviating burden. And we, we know that there's a lot of burden associated with clinical care and 
in the, also in the context of participating in a clinical trial. So in the spirit of design thinking, we decided to first gain empathy in this area of alleviating burden. So before we go off and jump to some sort of technical solution, we're going to uh, take our own approach of design thinking and see what we can learn. So the first step was for us to gain some empathy. And we had the opportunity to go to an adult care center uh, in the Indianapolis area uh, for patients with dementia. And several folks from our team were able to interview a number of caregivers of those patients and to understand more about their burdens. And this is uh, what we call our kitchen table exercise, as Barry mentioned. And what we found from those interviews uh, was uh, very, very revealing. It really helped us understand what these caregivers were going through. And we learned that many of them were just completely tapped out. They were overburdened with all of the responsibilities of being a caregiver. And it would be very difficult for them to take on the extra commitment of participating in a clinical trial. So that right there was a very specific burden that we found. And we know that technology could help us here. We know that it could play a role. But we needed to be really careful about just introducing technology to try to alleviate something like this. Um, technology can come with any number of unattended consequences, as you can imagine. So we had to be very careful about how we would consider how we might be able to use technology to help with this. So one area where we decided to look was the area of ambient intelligence. Now, this is something that we, we feel that could be used to help, in, help these uh, situations of burden in a less obtrusive manner. So ambient technology uh, can be described in a variety of ways. It's automatic. It just works. It has natural interfaces. It doesn't require complex understanding of how to use it. It has simple deployment, very easy to deploy. Um, it's set it and forget it. I imagine you can think of some technology you have in your own lives where it's not set it and forget it, right? Or it fades into the background. It's not something that's constantly asking for attention and interaction. And lastly, it has low maintenance. So if you think about all of these factors, these things can help us um, in gaining some sort of sense. So this uh, ambient technology many times involves some sort of sensing. So we get some sense of the environment through this. But it leads us to an understanding of what we call awareness. So we can become more aware of our environment through the use of ambient technology. But it goes beyond that, because based upon the awareness, we can then take some action. And this is where we can now use actions to lead to an assistance. And that's our goal. Our goal is not to just become aware of our environment. Our goal is to actually provide assistance that can help us alleviate that original burden. So that is our formula that we decided to take with this, is starting with um, some form of sensing that leads us to an awareness. And based upon that awareness, we can take action which lead to an assistance. And that is our goal. 
So some samples of ambient intelligence that you may be aware of. Detecting movement, like when a door opens or closes. Um, detecting temperature. Uh, we use this on a coffee mug of a guy on our team, and we found that Quinn actually drinks a whole lot of coffee because we could detect when that temperature goes up in that cup. Or detecting power consumption. Um, devices now are available to be put into your home on your electrical mains and using machine learning and um, artificial intelligence can detect particular usage patterns in the home. And these are off-the-shelf kind of technologies, but think about how it might be applied in a clinical care uh, or a clinical trial scenario of maybe the patient in the home has left the burner on for several hours. Those things can be detected. Or um, driving habits. Again, uh, these are available today. Insurance companies can use them. Uh, but think about how detecting changes in driving habits might help us understand progression of disease. Or geofencing, when there is concern of uh, someone leaving a particular area to be able to no be notified uh, of that event. Or even using proximity for detection. And this one's interesting, where we actually did build a sample pro a prototype app on a watch that could be used by someone who has um, problems with memory to be able to recognize if, uh, let's say it's a healthcare professional there, um, to be able to recognize who that is when they're in proximity and that healthcare professional's picture and name appears in the watch and could help assist the patient. So think about how that could help maybe alleviate a little bit of burden along the way. So what we do as part of our exercise of being able to come up with some solutions, and before we go off and build a technology, we, we decide to go through a process where we build a, a recipe that describes the, um, the particular solution that we're, we want to build. And we call this a skill. So in our co-creation workshop, we actually take participants through this and help them um, go through this process and come up with some of the ideas on their own. So identify first a need to uh, resolve and then a set of uh, solutions below it. We're gonna step through that. And this example I'm going to step you through came from a need that we gathered by these uh, interviews that we had with the uh, caregivers from the, uh, the previous example I gave you. So this need, uh, is a caregiver needs to know if her dad with Alzheimer's took his pill because he often forgets. We heard that. This is a, a common burden, uh, not only the patient, but the caregiver themselves, not knowing whether their loved one has actually taken his medicine. So that's the need. And from there, we take a look at a couple different areas of how we could approach this. First, from the patient. Well, the patient might need to know where the pill bottle is, or to be able to locate it, and to be aware that it's time to take his medicine. So that's the awareness that we're trying to achieve. And we work backwards from that awareness to figure out, okay, we need, or that's the assistance, I'm sorry, the awareness we need is to know when it's time to take his pills. And so that is some sort of sense of time. 
and then to provide actions for the assistants, we thought that it might be helpful to provide some means like uh, making the pill bottle beep or flash or both uh, to help the, uh, the patient locate the pill bottle. So that's on the patient side. Now on the caregiver side, the caregiver wants to be notified uh, if he's taken his medicine. So that's the assistance that we're looking for. Now the awareness, we just need to know if he took the pills. Now you're probably aware of certain technologies out there that are emerging that can detect this uh, with some advanced technologies of a, of a patient swallowing a pill, but we didn't go that route, but we did want to approximate that. And the way we decided to do that was if we know that the patient is close to the pill bottle and the pill bottle moves, that's a pretty good approximation that we, can be, that, that we know that he's taken his medicine. And when that happens, then we notify the caregiver. So that is our skill. And so from here, we decide how we're going to actually build this out. So first, we needed to make a smart pill bottle. So we developed a hardware prototype of a, um, uh, a, an enclosure for the pill bottle lid, put some circuitry in there, an Arduino-based board and an accelerometer, uh, a, a light, and a, uh, a uh, beeper and then we put it on top of the pill bottle lid, and now we have a, a smart pill bottle. And this is our workbench in action. So now we have something that's, uh, that we can take action with. But we also needed a software prototype as well for the caregiver. So we built a mobile app that can, that can be used by multiple caregivers to communicate with one another, to monitor activities that the patient is needing to do as part of the clinical trial, as well as to track various trial materials that the patient uses, including the pill bottle. Now, uh, in addition to the mobile app, we needed a service platform uh, to coordinate all of these activities, uh, and that's where Amazon Web Services comes in. And I'll talk a little bit more late, uh, later about all the details of how we did that. And then our last step in the process is our proving ground, and this is where we get feedback. This is where we put it in the hands of people who might want to try this out and uh, critique it and tell us where it works, where it doesn't work, and then we get our feedback and then we, uh, we uh, take the loop again. So before I actually dive into the architecture of how all of this puts together, I'm going to do the ultimate proving ground experience, and I'm going to try to show you how this works. So if you give me just a moment, I am going to uh, get set up here. I have a uh, version of our, pill, our smart pill bottle here, which is the 3D printed enclosure on top of it uh, with the, uh, the circuitry in it. And I am going to show you the caregiver app. So this is the caregiver app. So there would be multiple caregivers who are uh, using this app. They can use it to communicate with one another. Uh, they can also see the tasks that the uh, patient in the trial needs to complete for this day. So you think about these caregivers are not always with the patient. They might be halfway around the world, but being able to know what's going on uh, 
with the patient would be helpful, as well as trial materials to be tracked. Okay, and so our pill bottle is one of those materials. So what I'm going to do here is simulate the event that it's now take time for the patient to take his medicine. So cross your fingers, we are going to see how that works. So you'll see a couple things happening. Uh, the app is showing, though, the pill bottle's an alarm. Our activity posts a message to the caregiver app that says, ah, oh, it's time for him to take his medicine. And the patient in his home has some indication that it's time for him to take his medicine. He's near it. He moves the pill bottle. The caregiver app now adds uh, an entry that says the patient took his medicine. So that completes that story of assistance. So we're assisting the patient, help him find his pill bottle. We're also assisting the caregiver in being able to know uh, my patient that I'm caring for, that I'm not near, has taken an action that's desirable. So behind the scenes to make all this work, there's a variety of things. So we've, we've labeled this our trial assistance platform. And the platform, um, first of all, needs to have some data uh, available to it. And so our trial activity management system, that is some sort of external system that is used to manage and track trial activities. But what it does is that it can inform this caregiver app that there are certain activities to be completed. But in the home, we have our smart pill bottle. We also have some sort of beacon that might be attached to the patient. And we have what we are calling base stations. And these base stations are communicating via Bluetooth low energy to this, these devices. But where Amazon Web Services comes in is pretty much the rest of it in order to coordinate all of these activities. So this is very much an Internet of Things-centric uh, architecture. So the pill bottle has, a, um, has an IoT shadow associated with it. And with that, the trial activity management system can update that shadow to say it's time to turn on the alarm for the pill bottle. And the patient app is aware of that. So the patient app is getting that notification, as you saw that it's time for him to take his medicine. But the base stations themselves are also subscribing to that updates to that shadow topic. And when that happens, the base stations can then communicate to the pill bottle, make it flash, make it beep. And whenever the patient is near the pill bottle and moves it, the base stations can then send a message back to that shadow that says now the, the alarm can be t is off and that can update the caregiver app. So a very IoT-centric, straightforward use of, of uh, the IoT environment. We also use DynamoDB to manage the uh, messages in that activity view that you saw so that uh, they can uh, talk with, uh, caregivers can talk with one another. And another thing we uh, experimented with and we have used with a decent amount of success, is the fact that the patient beacon is sending data 
frequently to the base station. And that is using um, proximity uh, data based upon how uh, strong that signal is between the beacon and the base station. And the base station is sending all that data on a very frequent basis into the IoT environment. So we took the IoT data and moved it into a Kinesis stream associated with an analytics part to get an understanding of all of the base station data that's being reported to figure out um, where the patient might be located in the home based upon the strength values of the beacon to the base station. And we sent that to a Lambda function to actually determine which room it is in and then update DynamoDB as well as another IoT topic for now that that data can be available. Where is the patient? What room is the patient in? Or perhaps where is the pill bottle? And we built an Alexa skill uh, that actually um, allows an echo to then ask the question, Alexa, where is the patient? The patient's in the bathroom. Or Alexa, where's the pill bottle? The pill bottle's in the kitchen. So we did prove this out, and uh, we were able to do it very quickly because we were just able to make use of a variety of services uh, right off the shelf. So that's, that's our trial assistance platform. We've added other devices uh, to uh, send into the IoT environment, uh, which has been really helpful for us uh, to be able to uh, test out different capabilities. So another example I want to show you is an extension of what this architecture is. And the fact is that we need to be able to reset this environment regularly. We need to be able to set different states depending on what we are doing. If we're giving a presentation or we have exhibits, uh, we need to be able to set this, this environment uh, in, a, in a way that allows it to be run fresh or, or a, in a particular state. So we have this need to manage our workshops and our exhibits in a way that makes it easy to use and easy to reset. If, if you are ever in the mode of doing demos, you know that sometimes it's a little burdensome to go through all the steps of getting everything reset and making sure everything's in place. So we came up with a solution, which we called Trial Jockey. It's like disc jockey for trial activity simulations. And what this app is, it's a mobile app that has different configurations of um, different settings in our Amazon environment as well as other environments that need to be reset. Uh, in order for us to run these exhibits and the workshops that we do. And when you execute one of those functions, it calls Lambda, and based upon some definitions, will reset that environment at the touch of a button. In fact, I just, just did it here uh, to simulate the event. It's now time for the patient to take his medicine. That was Trial Jockey running on another uh, phone up here. Uh, that says, time to take his medicine. So that was one of those events which uh, can cascade into various actions for us. So this has become really helpful for us that we sort of backed into because we built this environment to do demonstrations, but then we realized we need a way to manage this and reset it, so why don't we just use the tools that are available to us? We also have used the IoT buttons as well. So with the IoT button, 
right into the IoT environment, can call that Lambda function to reset an environment. So we have virtual buttons on an app, but we also have physical buttons that we can use to reset environments or set a particular state. In addition to this view on the app, which we call the DJ view, because you've got all the different buttons available to you, uh, we also wanted a view that we could use in some of our exhibits that are more user-friendly. This was really intended to be for someone behind the scenes. So we built another view that we call a trigger view that would have one particular image on this display, and we might put that in context of a particular exhibit. For example, we wanted to have a, a button that you push that starts a car engine, and that button would then cascade into other actions in the environment. So we have this trigger view of a, of, of a button uh, that someone could push. So an end user in our exhibits could walk up to wherever this is, deployed to a phone or, uh, or some other tablet. They touch it, and then it can do all the work behind the scenes. The user never knows that all these things are going on behind the scenes. Or uh, we just recently did one that was an alarm clock. You it's 7.59, you tap on it, it turns to 8, and the alarm goes off, and then a variety of things happen. It's time for the patient to wake up and notify the caregiver, et cetera, et cetera. So this environment has really helped us um, manage our, our larger uh, trial assistance platform. So the last area I want to discuss where we had made use of a variety of AWS services is our website. So this is a screen grab of our website. Our website is, it's really important for us as an innovation team to communicate very clearly and with high fidelity to our stakeholders. And so we needed, a, we had a variety of requirements that were not so simple. Uh, it wasn't a static website, and we needed to integrate with some existing um, enterprise services. So we needed uh, to build this out with a little bit more intention than just something very simple. So we had some standards that the company used, an identity provider, a content management system, a secure file storage. These are all existing services the company uses and we were expected to use. And we also needed to make sure it was secure to the end user. So we needed more than just something very static. And this is where a variety of services from Amazon has come into play for us to be able to uh, make this kind of uh, thing work very effectively. So first of all, we use the API gateway with a CloudFront, secure CloudFront dist uh, distribution in front, using Lambda to integrate with the identity provider, and that provided us an authentication service. So we, were, we had some very specific needs that we needed, so we were able to uh, just use uh, a Lambda function for that. We also used Cognito for uh, user pools for any external identities. We also used S3 for static content. That was very straightforward. But we also had some managed content that was being managed externally that we needed to provide into this website. 
And so we made the choice to use an elastic beanstalk instance for this for a couple reasons. One, it allowed us to hide the details of the implementation of integrating with the content management system between the Elastic Beanstalk instance and the content management system. So the user didn't have to deal with those details. And Elastic Beanstalk provided us with a level of performance that was uh, desirable, and we found it worked very well for us. And we did the same thing for media, so images, videos that were coming from both the content management system as well as the secure file storage service, we were able to do the same thing, provide high performance delivery of that content to the end user in the browser proved to be very successful for us. So there you have it. There are three examples of how we have built out our innovation, innovators platform. The trial assistance platform that allowed us to use a very IoT-centric architecture for uh, managing devices and understanding the state of devices and sensing uh, changes in that environment, to our trial jockey environment, which allows us to manage state changes and to reset environments at the click of a button, as well as to make it very simple for users to interact with. And then lastly, our website. And our website allows us um, to provide, with, with this architecture, allowed us to provide a, uh, a performant uh, as well as a high fidelity uh, environment for our end users. So uh, the last thing I, I didn't put up there, there it is, this last build, is the fact that we have um, uh, elastic load balancers in front of those elastic beanstalk instances. That gave us the secure endpoints that we needed. So in conclusion, what you've seen here from what Barry presented of, as, as an approach to an innovation team in the enterprise, as well as the um, architecture and the various uses of flexible technology, we're able to be effective as an innovation team. And uh, using the, the, the services from Amazon, uh, web services, allowed us to move very quickly. So moving quickly was extremely important, but also a breadth of services, and to allow us to actually test them all the way out. It was not just smoke and mirrors. These were real capabilities that we were able to build out at the push of a button very quickly, and to prove that by turning those cranks very quickly and showing what we can do uh, for our constituents. So with that, um, there's more information you can find uh, on lily.com. Our uh, clinical innovation team has a Twitter handle at Lily Trials, and uh, be happy to uh, entertain any questions you have. We have a, have a few minutes here. Barry and I would be happy to ask, answer any questions you have. If you would, please go to the microphones that are in the aisles.